0: Hello, we're Equinor. As a global energy leader, we're working hard to reduce methane emissions and our carbon footprint. Good morning. I'm James Hellman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Friday, November 22nd. In today's news, Benjamin Netanyahu says the indictment against him is part of a witch hunt and an attempted coup. Sound familiar? The former mayor of Baltimore pleads guilty to four corruption-related felonies while implicating accomplices. And the Trump EPA just weakened safety rules designed to prevent refinery explosions. But first, the big idea. For two months, the impeachment inquiry has focused on President Trump and whether he abused the power of his office for his own political advantage. On Thursday, the inquiry seemed to broaden into a bracing examination of the insidious forces, including the spread of conspiracy theories, infecting American politics. The final day of scheduled public testimony in this phase of the investigation was dominated by the warnings of a former senior White House advisor that the country's susceptibility to baseless allegations and partisan infighting are more than unfortunate byproducts of this political era. Instead, Fiona Hill, who was Trump's top advisor on Russia for much of the past two years, said that these tendencies pose a growing security threat that Russia, among other adversaries, is exploiting. As a result, Hill emerged as one of the few witnesses over the past two weeks able to move from providing accounts of events inside the White House to placing the unfolding Ukraine scandal in a broader political context she depicted Trump's alleged attempt to pressure Ukraine for political dirt as harmful to both countries' security interests. She voiced dismay about the treatment of diplomats, including the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, who were either sidelined or disparaged for their efforts to defend official U.S. policy or testify about the president. But above all, she spoke with palpable concern about the extent to which partisanship in the U.S., has weakened our country's ability to agree on objective reality. She said we're being torn apart because truth itself is being questioned. A respected Russia scholar who previously served as a top U.S. intelligence official, Hill opened her testimony with a bristling rebuke of Republican lawmakers, and by extension Trump, who have sought to sow doubt about Russia's interference in the 2016 election with what she described as a fictional narrative. There are indications that at least one Ukrainian politician expressed support for Hillary Clinton in 2016 on social media and in an op-ed, and Ukrainian officials were involved in exposing the corruption of then-Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort, who's now serving a prison term on fraud charges related to millions of dollars he received for consulting work in Ukraine financed by political operatives close to the Kremlin and Vladimir Putin. But Hill and others have said there is no evidence that the Ukrainian government itself interfered in our 2016 election, let alone on the scale of Russia. So what's next in this inquiry? No additional Intelligence Committee hearings are scheduled, though that could change if they lock down additional witnesses. The dream Democratic witness at this point is former National Security Advisor John Bolton. Committee staffers are working to write a report that they'll release in the next few days, summarizing their findings based on the evidence that's already been presented during the hearings. Then the House Judiciary Committee will draft articles of impeachment as soon as the week after Thanksgiving, so the week after next. At this juncture, unless new information emerges, House Republican leaders say they think they can prevent any defections, and almost every Democrat in the House seems ready to vote for impeachment. Yesterday afternoon, a group of Republican senators met privately with senior White House officials to map out a strategy for a potential impeachment trial of Trump including rapid proceedings in the Senate that could be limited to about two weeks. The prospect of an abbreviated trial is viewed by several Senate Republicans as a favorable middle ground, substantial enough to give the proceedings credence without risking greater damage to Trump by dragging them out too long and risking damaging new information being exposed. Under this scenario, the Senate trial could begin as early as January if the Democratic-controlled House votes to impeach next month. Now, Lindsey Graham was one of the six senators at the White House to plot strategy. Then, a few hours later, in his capacity as chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, he sent a letter asking Mike Pompeo to provide documents related to the Bidens, Ukraine, and Burisma. Graham's document request suggests that he is seeking to legitimize Trump's accusations that Joe Biden, as vice president, put pressure on Ukraine to fire its lead prosecutor to protect his son. There's no evidence for this claim. It's been disputed by a host of officials familiar with the investigation, but this appears to be part of the Trump defense strategy. Now, a few weeks ago, Graham said he was under intense pressure to launch this investigation into Biden. He said that Trump and his allies, including Trump's kids, were trying to get him to do it. But Graham said he would not turn the Senate into a circus, and he would instead focus his committee's work on the investigation into the Justice Department's launch of the Russia investigation. This letter to Pompeo shows that Graham has changed his mind under pressure. In other investigation news, the Justice Department Inspector General on that investigation Graham wants to look into has found evidence that an FBI employee may have altered a document connected to court-approved surveillance of a former Trump campaign advisor. Inspector General Michael Horowitz concluded that the conduct did not affect the overall validity of the surveillance application, the FISA warrant. The person under scrutiny has not been identified, but two sources tell the Post that it's a low-level FBI lawyer who's since been forced out of the FBI. The employee was forced out as soon as the incident was discovered. Horowitz found that the employee erroneously indicated he had documentation to back up a claim that he had made in discussions with the Justice Department about the factual basis for the application. Our sources say he then altered an email to back up the erroneous claim. This conduct did not alter Horowitz's finding that the surveillance application of former Trump campaign foreign policy advisor, Carter Page, had a proper legal and factual basis. Meanwhile, up in New York City, prosecutors behind an investigation into the Trump organization have zeroed in on Alan Weiselberg, Trump's chief financial officer, and his connection to the hush money payments to the porn star Stormy Daniels, Weiselberg got federal immunity to testify against Michael Cohen, but the immunity deal only applied to the federal proceedings, not state and local charges. ProPublica reports that District Attorney Cyrus Vance's grand jury has been examining whether Weiselberg, among others, even the Trump organization itself, should face state level criminal charges for falsification of business records. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has formally been charged with bribery, fraud, and breach of trust. This makes him the first Israeli premier to be indicted while in office. It also sends the country's stalemated political system deeper into disarray. Israel's attorney general capped a three-year investigation by issuing a 63-page indictment against the country's longest-serving prime minister. The cases against Netanyahu center on allegations that the prime minister and his wife, Sarah, accepted more than $260,000 worth of luxury goods in exchange for political favors, and also that Netanyahu interceded with regulators and lawmakers on behalf of two media companies in exchange for them running positive stories about him. Netanyahu, who's 70 and trying to hold on to power in the face of a third election in a year, has denied any wrongdoing. Now, if you expect that pugnacious, prime minister to do anything other than ferociously fight the counts that came against him. Many predict he'll seek a vote in parliament, granting him some measure of immunity. Bibi gave a combative address to the nation last night, during which he dismissed the indictment as a politically motivated witch hunt. Netanyahu then called the indictment a, quote, coup attempt driven by a corrupt set of prosecutors. Then he said, quote, it's time to investigate the investigators. Probably sounds familiar because Trump has used every single one of those phrases himself. America doesn't just export movies. We apparently export our political culture too. Number two, turning to a case of corruption in our neck of the woods, former Baltimore Mayor Catherine Pugh pleaded guilty to fraud and tax evasion conspiracies to illegally hide profits from sales of her children's book to enhance her personal fortunes. Pugh's acknowledgment of guilt in four of the 11 charges filed against her came during a court hearing in downtown Baltimore, the city the disgraced 69-year-old led until just a few months ago. Authorities in April searched Baltimore City Hall, Pugh's home, and a nonprofit organization tied to her. Seeking financial documents and other information related to $800,000, she was paid for her self-published children's book called Healthy Holly. Most of the books in Pugh's transactions were marketed and sold directly to nonprofit organizations and foundations, many of which did business or tried to do business with the state when she was a state senator and the city of Baltimore when she was mayor. In all, court records show Pew took money for 124,000 books, but printers only produced 63,000 copies. Sentencing will come later. Guidelines say she could get as much as nine years, though the guilty plea in her advanced age will probably mean something way less than that. But the plea hearing yesterday surfaced new details about at least one book purchaser who Pew said in her plea agreement was aware of his payments being diverted into her pocketbook. In the lead up to the 2016 mayoral election, J.P. Grant, the owner of Grant Capital Management, a financing company in Columbia, Maryland that did business with the city, wrote a $50,000 check to Healthy Holly LLC. Pew says Grant understood the money was intended to produce books for Baltimore students with the balance going to her campaign. One month after the election, Pew told Grant she wanted to buy a larger house so that she could entertain people when she became mayor. She took Grant to see the property that she wanted to buy. Then, this again, all coming from the plea deal, Pew suggested that Grant write her another check, this time for $100,000. The idea was that the $100,000 would buy books for kids but the former mayor confessed yesterday that none of the money went to print or deliver books to school students. Grant didn't respond to our requests for comments. Number three, Trump's Environmental Protection Agency has weakened safety rules dictating how companies need to store dangerous chemicals. These rules were enacted in the wake of that 2013 explosion in West Texas that killed 15 Under the new standards, companies will not have to provide public access to information about what kinds of chemicals are stored at their facilities. They also will not have to undertake several other measures aimed at preventing serious accidents, such as analyzing technology and procedures, conducting root cause analysis after major chemical releases, or obtaining a third-party audit when a significant accident occurs. The EPA's excuse for this is that forcing companies to say what chemicals they're storing in their plants so that local communities know could also be used by terrorists and give them a roadmap for attacks. The Trump administration yesterday afternoon also unveiled a plan that could allow oil drilling on over three quarters of the nation's largest piece of unprotected wilderness. The 23 million acre National Petroleum Reserve in Alaska is roughly the size of Indiana, but it's attracted much less public attention compared to the neighboring Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. The Obama administration put half of this reserve off limits to development six years ago on the grounds that specific areas provide crucial habitat for hundreds of thousands of migrating birds and tens of thousands of caribou. But it's also the site of significant oil deposits, and recent findings suggest that this reserve could hold as much as 8.7 billion barrels of undiscovered oil. I close the week with these two stories because they're a reminder of how much stuff the Trump administration is doing to deconstruct the administrative state and help corporations. A lot of this has been overshadowed by impeachment. It may not be top of mind for most people, but the president's environmental record will be a central part of his legacy, whether you think it's a good idea to drill in Alaska or not. Decades from now, the odds seem high that the rollbacks of safety standards that the EPA has announced, especially if or when there are more accidents will be just as big a part of the Trump legacy as his conduct toward Ukraine. The EPA itself was originally created by Richard Nixon before Watergate. And that's The Daily 202 for Friday, November 22nd. Thanks for listening. I'm James Hellman. If you want to get more news about the impeachment inquiry, you can now subscribe to a new podcast feed from The Washington Post. All of our audio updates on the inquiry are in one place, including the latest from The Daily 202's Big Idea, Can He Do That?, and Post Reports. It's updated whenever news happens. You can subscribe at WashingtonPost.com podcasts.